I've got to tell you, I'm having a really enjoyable time, personally, as I'm studying the book of Esther. You know, it's one of those books in the Bible that uh, it's kind of tucked away in the center of the Old Testament somewhere with only ten short chapters. As we said last week, as we looked at Esther 1 and chapters 1 and 2, nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned. There's no reference to Jerusalem at all. And yet God is present in every page, almost every verse. When you see what God is doing, we see him making preparation. And that was kind of the, the word for last week in chapters 1 and 2, was simply preparation. The title of the message was The Fingerprints of God in Our Lives, and today it's The Fingerprints of God in Our Lives, Part 2. Creative, aren't I? This time we'll be focusing on chapters 3 and 4, and it, it talks more about the testing. You will see the testing that God's people, and especially the vessels he's chosen, the ones that are highlighted in the book of Esther, uh, to be used by him. We saw the incredible circumstances. Some people would say coincidences. I would say that that would be understating it dramatically. The phrase we used last week, I used last week, was the providence of God, a providential God. And I wanted to make sure that what I meant by that was understood. When I say a providential God, we're not talking about a God like the deists talk about, a God who basically set everything in motion, created everything, and then said, okay, good luck, I'll see you when I come back. That's not the kind of God he is. That's not what the providence of God is. It's not like the pantheists who believe everything is God. You know, the tree is God, the rock is God, you are God, everything. It's not that kind of God. And he's not a deterministic God. In other words, he's not the kind of God who gives you and I no choice, no free will, no ability to make our own decisions. But I believe, and here's what I read as a simple definition that I used last week for a providential God, saying that he is a very personal God who is creator and he is Lord. And he is distinct from his creation, yet directly involved with his creation, actively relating to creation at all times. Now, that all just simply says he is a God who created us. He's different than us. He is the creator. We're the creation. And he's not a hands-off God. He's a personal God. He's involved in your life every day. Every day. He is active in our lives. We just don't realize it most of the time. And in chapters 1 and 2, it was about preparation. God's doing something. You know what? He's doing something in every one of our lives. Every one of us are in preparation. You know, we're not completed projects by any means. In the book of Esther, we saw him doing thing after thing after thing that no people could organize. It wasn't part of anybody's plan or a scheme. And everything that he did was critical to the outcome that followed. Some of you will remember, and as you haven't, weren't here last week, I encourage you to either listen to it, but read and study it for yourselves. But one of the things that happened was Queen Vashti was given an order by Xerxes the king. After all his celebration and a drunken party, he wanted, after he showed off all his wealth, all his gold and silver and precious jewels, he wanted to get his living jewels, show, show off his living prize, his queen. And she said, uh-uh, I'm not going for that. And she disobeyed. And they had to make a new edict or law. And if you remember, when the king in Persia or the Medes made an edict, it was irreversible. And that's a very significant fact as we go through this. And even today, uh, we're going to see another edict, another irreversible law, something that can't be changed, can't be repealed. 
And it's amazing how God works around that situation. So Queen Vashti obeyed, and she was removed as queen. And after a failed war with Greece, he came back, and he was regretting his decision, thinking about his queen. And his helper said, you know what? Let's just go out there and find the most beautiful virgins we can find throughout all the provinces that we rule over and bring them back. And then we're going to put them all in this 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 situation where they're going to be made even more beautiful for a whole year. Doing all the things, whatever those things were, the perfumes and the lotions and the ointments. And then after a year, we're going to let the, the, the king have one at a time until he decides which one he likes the best. It's a pretty sick culture, as you can tell already. And... Lo and behold, this woman, this young woman, probably a young girl, probably 16, 17 years old, something like that, named Esther, was one of them brought to the palace to be prepared. And if we see as you read chapters 1 and 2, everywhere Esther was, whether it was with all the other the future concubines or the eunuchs that were taking care of them, whoever it was, she had favor. They all liked her the best. And when she was brought to the king... You know, they get a one-night stand with the king. And if he likes you, he'll call you back. He has to call you back. Or you're relegated to this group of concubines that probably never see the king again. And you never are free again. And lo and behold, Esther went, and the king's favor was upon her, and Esther was made queen. What are the odds? This little Jewish girl. Her father, her adopted father named Mordecai, had told her, don't tell them about our Jewish background. Don't let them know we're Jewish. Keep that part quiet. Mordecai raised, was raised to a place of prominence. He had some responsibility and authority, obviously because of Esther's new position as queen. And he would sit at the city gate. And, and while he was there one day, he heard a couple of the guards, the bodyguards, so to speak, of King Xerxes, plotting to kill him. And he told Esther, and got word to Esther, and Esther then went to the king. And they investigated and found out that it was true. And Mordecai, by all traditions, should have been rewarded for this, but he wasn't. But it says just one little phrase. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Insignificant until we go through the story, and even that becomes a very significant fact. Chapter 2 came to an end, and there was really, at that time, no critical or immediate concern. No conflict was in place yet, but yet God had already been working. He'd already been working, putting things in place, preparing, making preparation, just like he does in our lives. And there is no way that Esther nor Mordecai, or any other of the cast of characters in this true story, were aware of what was being prepared to happen. But God was at work, just like he is in your life and my life. We're going to go into chapter 3 and 4 today, and really the main point of chapters 3 and 4, we will see, is to be faithful under the trials that come as God is working in our lives. Because... Remember, I mentioned last week, even though we hopefully have been saved, we are still exiles, in a sense, here on earth. The Bible refers to us as sojourners. This is not our home. Our home is where? In heaven. 
Our home is already with the Lord if we're born-again believers in Jesus Christ. So we are really, truly still exiles here on earth. And we are exiled in a place, earth, where there's a lot of bad things. And we, as exiles here, will experience many, many trials and testings, a lot of bad things. We have an enemy, the devil, who is still declared to be the, the prince of this earth, He's still present, and all his demons are still present. And there is sin everywhere. So as Christians, this is not our home. We are just passing through. And though sometimes it seems overwhelming to us when we're passing through, when we're going through trials and tests and different circumstances, and some of them are, are, are terribly difficult, and some of them seem to last and last and last and last. But in terms of eternity and the promise we have from the word of God of spending eternity with him in his presence in our real home, this is just like a flash of light this time here on earth. Doesn't mean it's easy. But if we keep our eye on the promises of God and the word of God instead of the the circumstances, we can live our lives in a total different way that will bring glory and honor to him. And the preparations he's making in our life will lead us more quickly to the destiny that God has for us. So today we're going to be looking at the story, and we're going to see the story begins to intensify. It gets more tense. Things are starting to happen. We're starting to see maybe not the solution, but we're starting to see the real problem that God was preparing his deliverers for. And we're also going to see something that is really intriguing to me and I know some of you maybe aren't teacher types like me and you don't really care about digging just a little deeper. I'm sorry in advance, but we're going to dig a little deeper because there's some stories within the story that make the story come to life and give you even more understanding. So we're going to look at that. So we're going to start reading. In Esther chapter 3, I'm going to start with verse 1. I said this last week, there is tons of historical evidence that supports this story. The timing, the years, the King Xerxes, all that took place. So I call it a story, but I'm not referring to it as a story of fiction. It is a story of fact. Starting in verse 1, after these events, these are the events that had taken place with Queen Vashti becoming... uh, being exiled and Esther becoming queen and Mordecai, etc. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. We have no other lead into this guy. He just, all of a sudden, there he is, Haman. And for whatever reason, which is a very good reason, it tells us he's an Agagite. And it says this, All of the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Notice, it doesn't require you to worship him. It's just honoring the king. And it says, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it. 
to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Back in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, we get a little introduction to Mordecai. And it says this, there was this guy named Mordecai. He was the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, if you're like me, most of the time when you go through all that stuff, the genealogy, you go, okay, great, let's get to the story. There is significance to every word that's in the Bible. Sometimes we just don't catch it. Remember King Saul? Here's what it says about King Saul. He was the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Mordecai was the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So here we have a man, a Jewish man named Mordecai, who is in the direct lineage of King Saul, the first king of the Jewish people. One of the things that happened in the life of King Saul, even let's back up, way back when Israel was wandering through the desert, there was this group of people, enemies, part of the land of Canaan. They were called the Amalekites. The Amalekites would come from behind and attack. And in the scripture it says, because of these Amalekites, God was going to war against them for generation after generation after generation. I tell you that to let you know that when Saul was king, he received an order from God. God says, Saul, I want you to attack and destroy, annihilate, wipe out the Amalekites. I want you to kill every single one of them. I want you to destroy everything they own. Don't take any souvenirs. Even if they're pure gold, don't take anything. And King Agag, kill him. Wipe him out. Well, turns out Saul didn't do that. He went to war against the Amalekites. He conquered them. And some of his soldiers decided that we should take some of the, the gold and the silver and a few other things. And Saul decided not to kill King Agag. He took him back. If you want to read that story, you can in Samuel, but the prophet Samuel confronted Saul about what he'd done, and then it was left up to the prophet Samuel. He called for the king Agag, and King Agag came, was brought before him, and he was feeling pretty cocky about being the king. And evidently, Saul had given him a little bit of freedom, and it says he took a sword and cut him in pieces. Prophet Samuel. He finished the work that Saul was supposed to. And because of this, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 16, it says, for generations and generations, God will be at war at these people. Then there's this guy named Haman. little background on Mordecai, a Jew in the lineage of Saul. Then it says there's a guy named Haman. And who was he? Well, it tells us that he was a descendant of 
Agag of the Amalekites, an Agagite. He was in the direct lineage of King Agag, who was supposed to be killed, of the hated, despised Amalekites. So here we are, all of a sudden, in this story, we see this story within the story that we've got a descendant of King Saul, and we have a descendant of King Agag, and all of a sudden, they're brought into contact with one another. And it says Mordecai is not going to honor this guy at all. And Haman says, this Mordecai guy, I'm not satisfied with just killing him. We are going to wipe out the Jewish race. Every Jew in the provinces that we rule, we're going to wipe them out. It brings a little sense to why there was such a strong reaction by Haman and hatred towards the Jews and why Mordecai would, because they weren't prohibited by God to bow down and honor. That was fine. Don't worship, but to honor and respect the authorities, no problem. But he wouldn't do it. And it's an interesting sidebar because almost everything else that's going to take place from here on out could look, be looked at this way. If Saul had just did what he was supposed to do, if Mordecai would have just put his heritage of despising the Amalekites behind him and just bowed down, none of this would take place. But that's not what happened. Saul had chosen comfort over obedience. He took half obedience and thought God would be okay with that. There's a lesson there for us. God wants us to be obedient. He wants us to hear his voice and be obedient. Not just half obedient. So I thought, well, you know, it can't be all that bad. Boy, there's a lot of riches here. We've conquered these people. We've defeated them completely. No sense killing the king. Who knows what I can get from him, what benefit I can get out of him. And a little gold and silver and a few other trinkets, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. But he thought half obedience combined with his own desires, his own pleasure would be good enough for God. And it wasn't. We sometimes hear the word generational curses in our circle of churches or generational consequences. I would say right here we see a great example. Sin is a personal thing. When I sin, it's between me and God. But the consequences of my sin may impact generations of my family that follow me. The lineage. If Paul would have been obedient and the consequences of his disobedience, of his sin against God, were being carried out for generation upon generation upon generation. We need to be aware and and take authority and break and repent of those generational things in our lives. You know, there's things in my family lineage that I say, you know what, they're going to stop with this generation. Whatever it takes. You know what, and I didn't come to that realization until it was a little late in my children's lives. So they got to see some of the generational stuff in my life, and hopefully they haven't picked up much of it. But the importance of our own obedience is so critical, not just for us, but for generations. The story continues in verse 7. In the 12th year of the reign of King Xerxes, remember when the story started? 
in the third year of the reign of King Xerxes. It says, in the twelfth year of the reign of King Xerxes, the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor. And this was really the casting of lots. Or you and I today might say, they rolled the dice to see what would happen. They cast the poor in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. He's looking for a specific day and a specific month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, notice, he was already making all the plans before he ever went to the king. The enemy's a sneaky liar and deceiver. And it's interesting, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and how we're going to see this trifecta carried out even in Haman. There's no doubt in my mind he was nothing but a tool of Satan. It says, And the lot fell in the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's this certain people, dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put a 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. I can't remember. I read it, but I think it was either 125 or 175 tons of silver. A lot. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said, and do with the people as you please. First he rolls the dice, casts the lot to pick a day. And notice, it turns out that it's going to be 11 months from that day. And as the story unfolds, this decree is written that they're all going to be killed. They have 11 months to agonize over this. I mean, that'd be like somebody coming to you and think of the worst thing that could possibly happen to you and your family. And then they say, it's going to happen in 11 months. What are you going to do? Well, you might turn to the Lord, filled with faith and the promises of God. Or if you're kind of human, you might have all of a sudden been overwhelmed with fear, anxiety. What are we going to do? How are we going to escape this? Notice that Haman's accusation was vague and half true or untrue. The devil is like this, and as Christians, when we get persecuted and confronted, we should expect this. Vague accusations, half-truths. Notice, he didn't even tell the king who these people are. He didn't tell him how many there were. He didn't tell them where they were located. None of those things. And the king, he just said, yeah, okay, whatever. If it pleases the king, yeah, I'm powerful, wipe them out. He had no idea. He didn't even ask what was going on. And it's a half-truth. Yeah, there were these people. And they are scattered throughout the kingdom. And yeah, they are different than us. But they followed the king's laws. 
And you and I need to remember, the capital city where they're at is called Susa. And these Jews have been there for years and years and years. Not only did they, they, were they taken as, um, and, and brought to a foreign country when they were conquered, like 70, 80 years ago, when they could start going back, when King Cyrus said go back, a lot of them decided, yeah, it's pretty good here. Let's just stay put. So in the capital city of Susa, shoot, your next door neighbors could have been Jews and they could have been fine businessmen. They could have been acquaintances. They could have been guys you went golfing with on Saturday or something. And this is significant because of what we see written in just a few minutes. So, so they're, 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 the accusations are vague, filled with half-truths. And it shouldn't surprise us when you and I get ac- accused or persecuted that it's going to be generalities, half-truths, etc. And again, when that happens, who is your defense? Who are you going to trust? We need to put our trust in God, the word of God, the truth of the word of God. Not on the circumstances. Not on the person bringing the accusation. But let God be our defense and his word be our defense. As you can see, the tension is beginning to intensify here as we go into verse 12. It says this, Then on the 13th day of the first month, a royal sentence, the royal secretaries were summoned. Remember what I said about an edict from the king? Irreversible. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various people. So they wrote it in every language of all of these different provinces so there'd be no misunderstanding. And these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his ring, his signet ring that he had given to Haman. Man, when the king's signet ring was on there, that was the king. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the orders to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Isn't that interesting? Kill's not good enough. We're going to kill him, we're going to destroy him, we're going to annihilate him. Let's steal, kill, and destroy. Let's just destroy them to the extreme. As bad as we can make it, let's make it that bad. Haman hated the Jews of the descendant of King Agag. Young and old kill, women, little children, all on a single day, let's do this, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That's where the tons and tons of silver were going to come from. Let's plunder their goods. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. Just think of this edict. On a certain day, 11 months from now, we're going to kill them all. And after the seriousness of that edict, what's it say? King Xerxes and Haman said, let's have a drink, or a whole bunch. We'll see that in a moment. The king, Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Why wouldn't they be bewildered? All of a sudden, we're supposed to kill our neighbors, all of them, man, woman, child. We're to kill, destroy, and annihilate 
All these people that have been living with us in Susa at peace for all these years, good citizens, though they weren't of our nationality and they worshipped a little different than we did. We're supposed to kill them. And remember the edict that was made about Queen Vashti that she would never see the king again. It was law. It could not be repealed in any way, shape, or form. Here we have another edict given by the king that it cannot be repealed. It can't be. So the law is now on this day, the 13th day, every single Jew in all the provinces will be slaughtered. There is a tension here, not just the fear and that tension, but there's this tension kind of going on between reversing the irreversible. How, do, how does God reverse the irreversible? There's a great example of him doing exactly that. And you and I are evidence of that taking place. God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of that tree, because when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 6.23 says, And the penalty for sin is death. An edict given by God the Creator. An irreversible edict given by God. We all deserve to die. Guess what? He never changed the edict. He never changed the rule. What did he do instead? God's brilliant. Did you already know that? God's brilliant. He decided, I can't change the rule. I can't change the game now. However, I am going to send my son, my only son, Jesus. I'm going to send him to earth as a baby, and he is going to live a sinless life, a life that does not demand death because he has never sinned. And even though he has never, ever, ever sinned, evil men planned to kill him. Kind of like Haman planned to kill him. There's an enemy behind this plot, and he's called Satan. Jesus came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He did all these amazing things, demonstrated love and mercy and compassion, and yet he was arrested. He was beaten He was tortured. He was nailed to a wooden cross and suffered and died. You know, when he was in the garden, he knew what was coming in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. We know the story, the Easter story. He, He sweats great drops of blood. He's in agony because he knows what's coming. He knows that the wrath of God is going to come upon all the sin of mankind, only he is going to become a curse for us on the cross. He's going to endure it all. He's going to pray the price in full so the edict of God is going to be fulfilled and he is going to die. And guess what? You know what he did? He removed the cause of death, sin. He didn't change the edict. He removed the cause. We no longer deserve to die. We are not being held responsible for our sin because he took it all. I wonder what God's going to do in this story to reverse this irreversible edict. Because it can't be changed. The king cannot change it. 
And it's really interesting, another little story within the story, the timing of this event. Have you ever heard somebody say God's timing is always perfect? Well, if you haven't, God's timing is always perfect. The timing here is uncanny. If you like the word coincidences or if you like the providence of God, I believe it's the providence of God. It is the 13th day of the month, the first month, you know, of Nisan. What happens on the 14th day in the first month of Nisan? Anybody have any idea? It's a huge feast day in the Jewish religion. The 14th day is Passover, where the Jewish people gather together and go through the whole Passover meal. And they're giving thanks for what? Deliverance from Egypt. The deliverance of God who did this miracle. It's the 14th day of the first month, so on the 13th day, they get the news. 11 months from now, we're going to kill, destroy, annihilate every single Jew. Can you imagine what the Jewish people were doing as they gathered with their families the very next day for Passover? What would their attitudes have been? What would your attitude be? Would they have went through that Passover meal just praising God and thinking of his faithfulness and and trusting in him for deliverance no matter how bad it looks? Or would they have been going, holy cow, this looks worse. I know God did it once for our forefathers. What's he going to do here? There's an irreversible edict here. What can he do? Can God? Was their faith in God strong? I don't know. But we've got to remember, they were people just like you and me. And some of the people around their table were family members, children. And the edict said, kill every one of them. Was it a faith-building thing? Or did it cause people to fear and question God? You and I probably don't face edicts quite that severe, but it's the same thing for us. On our faith journey, it can be just like this. Things happen. Things happen. We go through circumstances. Crappy things happen. Terrible things happen. Painful things happen. Are they faith-building? Or do they cause us to fear and question God? Where are you, God? How can this happen to me? I'm your son or your daughter. Or do we see our faith grow stronger? We're going to put our trust in you, God. We've got promises of your word. You're not through with me yet. We're going to hang in there. Is God's word more trustworthy than our perception of the circumstances, or isn't it? I'd like to say that I got this all now, and I've nailed this. But if you know me well, you know that's not true. When these things happen, it's, it's our natural instinct. Our emotions kick in. And we have these human emotions, and then we have a devil who will take and turn and twist and do whatever he can to set a trap and a snare when we're going through these things, causing us to question God, to question our faith. Can we really trust him? Is he reliable? Am I worthy? What did I do wrong? All those things that the enemy would love you to start thinking. The reality is, if you are a child of God, he doesn't do that to us. Oh, he'll allow trials in our life, but always to draw us closer to himself. He doesn't pour out his wrath and punishment on his children. That's reserved for those who reject Christ, not those of us who have accepted Jesus. 
We need to remember in the scripture, Romans 8.28, if, if you want to just memorize one scripture, this might be a pretty good one. There's a lot of pretty good ones. But this one just simply says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who have been called according to his purpose. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been called by God according to his purpose. And all things will work for good for us. Does that mean it's all fun and games? No way. He says, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? He didn't say, don't worry about the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death because I'm not going to let you go there. No, he says, when you walk, through that valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. For what? I am with you. Is is his word stronger, more reliable than our perception of the circumstances? Sometimes, and this is where it gets hard, sometimes it takes a long time to get through that trial. You know, it says it was in the 12th year of King Xerxes when this is taking place. Well, it was in the third year of Queen Xerxes' reign when Queen Vashta got exiled. So going backwards right now, when you go back, 12 years. We look at this, and it's like it was nine years since Vashti was removed. It was six years since this beautiful young virgin named Esther was taken from her home and brought to the palace to be prepared for this gross, dirty-minded, perverted king for a one-night stand. How does God work in things like that? He does. It's been five years since Esther was made queen. These things in God's timing, sometimes they take time to work themselves out. No matter what we're going through, we need to be encouraged that God's at work in our lives. Chapter 4. Oh my goodness. I'd ask for a vote. (laughs) Chapter 4. We can't get there. I tried hard, but we can't get there. I hope the story's got you at the edge of your seat. It's time for a commercial break. It just gets better and better and better. As you meditate on this and read, I hope you read these chapters. Remember, the reversal of the irreversible. God's did it before with our salvation. Look as you study at this time and and watch the story unfold. How is God going to do this? And in chapter 4, you'll probably come across what I think might be possibly the only verse in the book of Esther that you know. Perhaps you were born for such a time as this. It's written a little differently, but that's the way we paraphrase it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I praise you and thank you for the example of Esther and Mordecai. God, I thank you that we have your word that we can trust and put our faith in. I thank you, God, that our confidence is in a God who cannot and will not abandon us, forsake us. 
God, I pray for every single person here that's going through a trial. They may have came this morning discouraged, God, and filled with despair and hopelessness. God, I pray that they see a mighty God that you are, a God who is always filled with hope, a God that has every answer we will ever need, a God that will fulfill his promise that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear any evil because you are there with us and that you will work all things for good for those who love God and have been called for your purposes. Again, Lord, as we go our separate ways, I pray, Lord, that you would go before us, watch over us, and protect us. And once again, we pray for this coming week. God, we thank you for the awesome responsibility we have to take all of these children and be able to put the word of God in their hearts and minds. We pray that you will protect this place and this property, that no accidents, no injuries could occur. And we pray, Lord, that you receive the glory and honor in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.